So anyway, I, I've got a bunch of material which I hope will be interesting. Uh, some of it uh, may be a revision, some of it may be new. Uh, I hope it'll be fun. I hope it'll be uh, stretching at least on occasion. Uh, do feel free to uh, sort of interrupt me as I'm going through. Uh, stick up my hand and say, hang on a minute, what do you mean by, by that? Or what about this? Or ask background questions. Uh, feel free to, to interact. And I don't want this just to be me giving you a lecture for three hours this morning because that will just send everyone to, to sleep, including myself. Uh, <coughs> I also want to, to put um, thinking about ethics in a sort of broader context and to see how thinking about ethics uh, links up with other philosophical issues. Um, we divide the world up artificially into these different subject areas in order to study them and examine them at university and so on. But of course there's only one cosmos out there, uh, one universe, and uh, everything is uh, interrelated. Uh, and so we'll see that as we go through. So I want to start off by talking about uh, scientism. Not science, but scientism. Uh, which is a theory of knowledge uh, that basically says science is the only way to know anything. It's a very widespread theory of knowledge. I, I found it particularly prevalent amongst uh, sort of sixth form university uh, students that I talk to. Uh, it's a view of knowledge that's particularly pushed by uh, members of the so-called New Atheist uh, movement uh, over the last decade, and they've of course been very influential through their best-selling books and YouTube videos and so on. So here's a quote from um, Alex Rosenberg's uh, book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality. Uh, he says, being scientistic just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. Now, you can see this is a very uh, narrow understanding of how we get in touch with reality reliably. It's only through uh, science, uh, which for particularly the members of the New Atheism basically boils down to, ultimately, it's through our senses, whether directly or indirectly through scientific instruments. But Richard Dawkins says, you know, knowledge always has to come back to our senses, Well, if you have that view of how you know things, that's going to have an immediate impact on how you think about ethics. Uh, because it is blatantly obvious to the majority of people that science doesn't do ethics. Science uh, describes how the physical world is, how it operates. Uh, science allows us sometimes to predict things in the future more or less reliably. But ethics isn't simply about describing reality or predicting what someone's going to do. It's about asking questions about, well, what should someone do? How ought I to behave? It's a, a prescriptive. It's about what, what, are the right, what are my moral duties uh, and so on. And uh, these terms just simply don't fit within the, the scientific box, as it were. So you may be asking yourself why I have the picture of the cocktail and the chemicals here. So my illustration of this fact is uh, science will do an excellent job if I need to know how much poison I need to mix up to put in my Aunt Mabel's martini 
this afternoon in order to stand a very high chance of inheriting her country pile by the end of the week. Uh, science is uh, the go-to subject for that question. On the question of, um, if I do that to my Aunt Mabel, am I a cad or uh, a jolly good chap, uh, science uh, remains stum, you see. Science doesn't do ethics. The atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell put it this way. He said, we judge that happiness is more desirable than misery. That's a judgment that we make. Uh, goodwill is better than hatred and so on. But such judgments, he says, may be elicited by empirical experience. So I, I see someone behaving in a certain way towards someone else, and that experience elicits within me a judgment that, oh, they shouldn't be doing that, or, oh, that's nice of them. Weren't they brave to, to shelter people in their shop and throw crates at the terrorists? Or weren't they terrible to try and stab people? But it is fairly obvious, says Russell, that they cannot be proved, these judgments cannot be proved by empirical experience. For the fact that a thing exists or does not exist cannot prove either that it's good, that it should exist, or that it's bad. The pursuit of this subject belongs to ethics. Uh, but of course, if you retain or meet someone who has a scientific view of knowledge, it's going to be very hard to really get into the subject of ethics. It, it, it's going to reduce uh, talking about ethics to talking about my private, subjective, personal judgment that's not something that I think is really a, a judgment that could be true or false or right or wrong or more or less close to the facts of the matter, morally speaking, I'm probably going to think well, that you can't uh, get access to the facts or even indeed uh, that there aren't any such facts to get access to. Um, is this inability of science to deal with ethics, is it so much the worse for ethics, as the moral subjectivist would think, or is it so much the worse for scientism? Uh, you know, I would say, uh, well, I, I have certain experiences that elicit within me moral judgments, and it seems to me so obvious that those moral judgments are important and true and weighty, as it were, that if you come along with a theory of knowledge that says, I can't know those things that I seem to know in moral experience, then, well, so much the worse for your theory of how we know things. I say, go and adjust your theory uh, to fit what is obvious to me that I, that I know in my moral experience. My moral experience is a counterexample to a scientific theory of knowledge. But then you, in our culture, you'll, you'll, we get this sort of, not only this sort of fact-value divide, often justified by scientism, where, we, where we, we're forced into thinking that values aren't, aren't factual things that we can know about, and factual things that we can know about don't have any value attached to them. I think that's a false dilemma. Also, we get this false dilemma, I think, between... Uh, between feeling and, and knowing things. 
you might say, well, I'm pointing to my moral experience. You know, I, I have this real gut feeling that uh, terrorism or the Holocaust or whatever example you want to pick you know, is bad or that you know, loving your children selflessly is good. And this is a counterexample to any theory of knowledge that, that doesn't allow that fact in. But then someone's probably going to say something like, Oh, well, that's just, your, that's just your subjective feeling. You look at the world and you, you just have an emotive, an emotional reaction to it. You don't like the Holocaust or whatever. But that, you know, how can you say that that is about getting access to, to reality? That's just your feelings, isn't it? And again, I think that's a, a false dilemma and, and, and far too unnuanced a treatment of how we actually experience uh, knowing about reality. So, for example, when you eat this ice cream, uh, do, you, do you just, you have a feeling uh, that it's cold or sweet? Um, or do you know that it is cold or sweet through having your subjective, private, personal, first-person experience of the ice cream? Um, you might want to say, well, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> um, you know, do you personally prefer the taste of vanilla ice cream to chocolate mint chip ice cream? Well, there, again, the answer might be, yes, I prefer it, subjectively speaking, but then I'm not claiming that one is actually better than the other. But if I claim that one ice cream is colder than the other, or that one is sweeter than the other, because of my experience of it, you can't just dismiss that. and say, oh, well, that's just your experience. That's just, that's just your subjective feelings. Well, it's not quite that. I just have a feeling about the... About the these aspects of the ice cream. It's not just that I've got, oh, I've got a fluttering in my stomach. Or it's made me go weak at the knees. Or so, like. um, and indeed, those feelings often uh, indicate very important things to us uh, in life, as our eyes met across a crowded room and I went weak at the knees. You know. So, I think we need to go beyond talk about feelings. We need to talk about rational intuitions. And, and here is the, the sort of ultimate example of this. Uh, we use this language of seeing when we talk about uh, logic or, or math. Do you see that that has to be the answer? You know? uh, when you see that a certain argumentative form uh, is logically valid, uh, so for example, if you have any argument with this structure, it says if A, then B, A is indeed the case, therefore B is the case. Now, you can, you can just see that any argument that has that structure is logically valid. Any argument with that structure is one such that if uh, the two premises are true, if A then B, if that's true, and if A is also true, then it must be true that therefore B. So, you know, if, if Socrates is mortal uh, and all mortals die... Uh, then Socrates will die. It's an uh, argument with that sort of uh, 
structure. Well, that, that knowledge by insight of, yeah, that's a logical form of argumentation. Uh, that can't be dismissed as, oh, that's just your feeling about it. But neither, clearly, is it something that you know or infer from experience or experiment or observation. Uh, indeed, uh, when we have insight into logical truths, we're, having, uh, we're getting a knowledge of necessary truths. And it would seem impossible to get such knowledge of necessary truths from our finite observation of how things in the world just are or work. You, you get you know, David Hume's famous problem of just because I've seen the sun come up a load of times in the past, that doesn't prove that necessarily the sun will come up tomorrow. To argue that it must will put me in the same position of the turkey that says, well, for the last 364 days, the farmer has come out, given me food, and gone back in the house. Therefore, today, the farmer will probably come out of his house, give me food, and walk back into... What's that axe he's had? Hang on a minute. <laughs> Past experience doesn't prove necessary truths, and yet we, we do know necessary truths in logic. So, uh, we know about logic through, through feeling, through rational insight, I'd rather say, and that doesn't fit uh, within scientism. And, of course, we, we must believe that we have reliable knowledge of logic before we can do science, uh, before we can do any uh, academic argumentation about anything. Uh, including science, including um, ethics. Now, in other fields, like um, aesthetics, and if I point to a rainbow and say, that is beautiful, or um, a concrete car park from the 1960s, that is ugly, you know, uh, or ethics, uh, I think there are clear cases, and there are, of course, harder cases, which is where we get controversial harder cases, but that doesn't obscure the fact that there are clear cases. And I think we know that our intuitions can be fallible in these other fields. Um, with that logical insight thing, we think, well, yeah, that's true, and I can't be wrong about that. With ethical cases, sometimes we think, yeah, I, you know, I know what the right thing to do is, and there's no way you could convince me otherwise. But there are obviously, there are really tough cases where we go, I, I just don't know what the right thing to do is. I can see why people could be on different sides of this or that difficult ethical issue and so on. Uh, we know our intuitions here can be fallible, but nevertheless we begin by trusting our intuitions and we can only change our minds on any of these issues where we know we're fallible. We change our minds only on the basis of trusting additional intuitions and insights and arguments and so on. Um, as Richard Swinburne, Christian philosopher, points out, if I, if I said, I'm never going to trust any sort of intuitions or trust uh, the appearance of reality, I'm never going to trust it until you can give me evidence to show that it's trustworthy. 
Well, then any evidence you tried to give me to show that that was trustworthy, I would, of course, think the, th the same thing. I'd have the same scepticism about the arguments and evidence that you'd given me. And I'd sort of be digging myself into an infinite pit of scepticism from which I could never escape on that basis. Whereas if I start with trust, and I say, well, it looks like there's a chair in front of me, so there probably is. I mean, I suppose I could be wrong about this. You can think up all sorts of scenarios in which I'm wrong about that. So, you know, that's a fallible truth claim. But the, the, the burden of proof is on the person who comes into the room and says, Pete, I know it looks like there's a chair in front of you there, but actually it's all a conspiracy. You know, and I would go, mm, okay, interesting claim. Why should I believe you? <laughs> the burden of proof is on the sceptic, not on the one who has trust in the appearance of reality, in their intuitions, in what seems to them to be the case. Um, so these issues, philosophers have talked a lot in recent history about this whole issue of sort of burden of proof and do you have to have, in order to rationally claim to know something, do you have to have an argument in its favour or some evidence in its favour, like the scientism position says and so on. Uh, a lot of our philosophers argued, actually, no. <laughs> um, it's more like you have to have an argument uh, if you want to show that some sort of conspiracy some sort of sceptical position is true, not the reverse. That's why I put a, a legal gabble up there, because these, these issues where we, we kind of know that we're fallible about things, nonetheless, we know that we can be reasonable, more or less reasonable about them, and we want to weigh the evidence and, and the, the argumentation and arrive at the most plausible... Uh, conclusion that we have on the basis of what we know at the moment whilst remaining open to being convinced otherwise. And then we can go to the Court of Appeal later. So this <coughs> scientific view of knowledge I say is vulnerable to counterexamples, particularly strongly in logical knowledge but also in aesthetic and moral knowledge and so on. The demand of you must give me evidence before I trust basically uh, boils down to a sort of infinite regress demand that can never be satisfied. Um, the demand, I'm never going to believe anything until you give me evidence, um, is not a demand that is itself justified by evidence. If you say, well, why should I accept that demand as being reasonable? What's your evidence that we should never believe anything is reasonable to believe unless we have evidence for it? <laughs> um, what experiment have you done to show that that's true? Uh, none. <laughs> it's, it's just a sort of ad hoc philosophical claim. Um, so uh, don't be cowed by this very popular uh, view of science is the only way to know anything and therefore there's this sort of um, gap between factual discussions and ethical value discussions uh, and uh, it's all a matter of your opinion 
and you can't know stuff through your feelings, and so that's ethical talk. It's, that's all subjective, and uh, we can't really have a rational discussion about it. I think, I think all of that, popular as it is, when you, when you think it through, uh, is a load of baloney, uh, to use the technical expression. Yeah. <laughs> and anything anyone wants to ask will come back on that. Mm. So ethics, uh, one way of uh, sort of dividing up the subject traditionally is in three sort of uh, levels of ethical discussion. At the highest level, we have uh, applied ethics, where we're simply asking and trying to answer the question, what should I do in this particular situation? Below that, uh, we have normative ethics. Uh, this is where we ask questions about, well, how do I know or how should I decide what to do in any given situation rather than in particular situations? Now, often in applied ethics, where our intuitions speak very strongly to us, we don't, we don't worry about it. It's like, you know, should I love my children selfishly or you know should I commit theft or we don't like oh it's a great big moral dilemma anyway, it's sort of, it seems obvious to us so we don't get on to normative ethics that, that really comes into play when we face the hard cases we say oh I'm not really sure what the right thing to do is here um, so let's advert to some sort of normative ethics, some sort of discussion of norms and how I make wise choices about what to do that will help me out. And below that is the level of meta-ethics, beyond ethics in a sense, where we start dealing with more apparently abstract philosophical questions like, you know, what, what is goodness? Uh, is goodness uh, an objective thing? Is it something we discover? Or is it something we invent, something that's subjective, rel relative to us, and so on? Uh, can we know the good? How do we know the good? Um, which normative ethic is the best one to use when we face a hard applied ethical choice and we want to turn to a normative ethic to help us make the right choice? But different people put forward different competing normative ethics. So how do we choose which normative ethic is the best one to use? Uh, I've got uh, on the side here two issues that we may have time to, to get through. Uh, I've, I've put them there mainly because, again, they, they throw light on this interconnectedness of ethics with, with other issues, uh, talking about free will and talking about uh, abortion. Now, although there's some <coughs> overlap, normative uh, ethics, again, tends to break down into three major sort of groupings. Um, there are uh, agent-centred uh, theories of ethics, uh, like uh, virtue theory, stemming back from the ancient Greeks in particular, uh, where we're really looking at what sort of person should I be? What sort of person should I be becoming? Uh, there are action-centred theories, technically called deontological theories, uh, 
uh, ontos from being and telos from the Greek goal or end directed. Uh, uh, these are sort of um, what what am I directing uh, my actions uh, uh, towards achieving? Um, sort of uh, fulfilling certain moral duties, living up to a certain set of moral rules and do's and don'ts, uh, if you like. So action-centred, sort of rule-based ethical thinking. And finally, there are outcome-centred theories, uh, often called consequentialist theories, because we're, we're looking at what are the consequences of my actions going to be. And these are theories uh, like uh, hedonism, you know, will my actions bring me the, the maximum amount of pleasure possible or not, or utilitarianism, famous 19th uh, century thinkers on this, like Jeremy Bentham and so on, uh, basically asks, uh, the, 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 says um, the right thing to do is that which will bring the, the greatest amount of happiness to the greatest number of people. Uh, and then you can ask questions like, well, hang on a minute, what do you mean by happiness here? And um, It's like, um, you know, in the uh, American Constitution, they have the, this phrase about you know, the pursuit of happiness and so on. A lot of people today interpret that, of course, in sort of hedonistic terms. Yeah, the pursuit of happiness. I'm going to, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Um, of course, from the ancient Greek context, happiness comes from the virtue theory uh, field of thinking, Aristotle uh, talked about uh, eudaimonia, which we often translate as happiness. Uh, and he was thinking more in terms of that which makes for human flourishing. Uh, so uh, that might include all sorts of things that, uh, at least in the short term, don't make me happy at all, like learning Latin grammar or something. <laughs> because uh, that actually, in the long term, will make for, for a flourishing life as I get into the classics and so on. So it's a sort of agent, uh, who am I, who should I be kind of theories. Uh, what, what, what should I do? What rules should I live up to sort of theories? And what's, what's going to be the consequences of my action kind of theories, broadly speaking. Now, of course, when we come to a, a assessing a normative ethic and we get onto that question, well, which normative ethic, which kind of ethical system should I turn to, to try and resolve these hard cases that we face, um, any particular normative ethic can't be assessed by that normative ethic without begging the question. You can't say, for example, um, why should we adopt a utilitarian normative ethic? And the utilitarian might say to us, well, you should adopt the utilitarian normative ethic because if you do that, that will lead to you producing the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. You see, they've, they've assumed that their normative ethic, pursue the greatest happiness for the greatest number, they've, they've assumed that that is right and good in order to argue why we should adopt that principle. They, but if you assume something in order to argue for it, that's called begging the question and sort of arguing in a circle. It's a circular argument. So we have to sort of press beyond that. And I think uh, we actually assess normative ethics, again, using our moral intuitions 
in clear cases, uh, if a particular normative ethic seems to be trustworthy to us on the basis of running it through a whole bunch of our moral intuitions where they're clear, uh, you know, it's, to- it's wrong to torture children for fun. Uh, so if, uh, if uh, I think to myself, if I, if I were following the utilitarian rule, can I think of situations where that would uh, end up with me torturing small children for fun? And uh, if it would, then I'm probably going to think, I don't think I'm going to follow utilitarianism. <laughs> but it might pass that test. Uh, you know, it's not, a, not enough for me to jump on the bandwagon just because it passes the one test. I'm going to see if it passes a whole bunch of tests. And that will increase my confidence in it. Um, that it, uh, oh, it, it seems to keep giving me the right answer where I know what the answer is. So when I don't know what the answer is, uh, I have some trust in this sort of system of thinking to, to guide me to the right answer. So it's back to this uh, issue of ethical uh, intuition, really. So a better, but probably still inadequate answer to the, the, the question we were posing, why should we adopt, say, a utilitarian and normative ethic, would be something like, uh, because adopting utilitarianism will lead you to making correct ethical choices more often than not. Like, well, if that were true, uh, that would uh, be a pretty good reason for uh, using utilitarianism in hard cases. That at least is, is a non-circular argument. Um, leaves us asking, well, is that true? Uh, but if it were, well, that would be a pretty decent reason. And indeed, I'd say yeah, utilitarianism, which is very widespread in our culture, particularly uh, utilitarian thinking, particularly goes on where you have, like, say, we've, we've got a limited uh, healthcare budget, and we want to wisely spend the healthcare budget. How should we spend it? We've got a limited sort of pot of resources, and we're trying to do something for a set of people. Uh, and we like, how do we apply the pot of money to the people in the best way? Uh, so it's the sort of thinking that government is involved in all the time in political discourse. Utilitarian thinking just it sort of permeates the whole thing. Um, it gives intuitively correct answers to many applied ethical dilemmas, but as a system, it also suffers from a great many problems as a normative ethic. So, for example, uh, it says, uh, you know, perceive the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Um, but over what time period should you pursue that goal? Do I only think about uh, the next week? What will create the greatest happiness for the greatest number in the next week? Or the next year? Or this generation? Should I think about the next generation? Do they count even though they don't exist now? Might never exist if we have World War Three. you know. Do people that don't exist count in ethical thinking? Um, how long term should I judge this? And the more long term I think that I should judge it, of course, the harder it's going to be for us to predict what will lead to the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Because, like, I don't know what's going to lead to the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people in a century's time or whatever. It's hard enough to know what will happen this week. You know? <laughs> how should I vote in the general election? Who knows? Uh, what about minority rights? Um, if we're focused on creating the greatest happiness for the greatest number, 
then does that mean we, we can ride roughshod over the happiness of minorities? Because we can say, well, you, you know, you're a minority. Um, so, yeah, doing, you know, X will make you really unhappy. But, hey, it will lead to all of these people being really happy. So that's the right thing to do. So does utilitarian ethics uh, end up giving no place for consideration of uh, being tender-hearted towards minorities? Um, and don't motive or moral character count in ethics? It's all about what are the consequences of my actions going to be? Uh, there's no focus on the, the, the question of what sort of person should I be becoming other than, um, well, the sort of person that will make his ethical choices by the utilitarian calculus. Kind of. um, well, okay, well, I could, I could be that sort of person and yet couldn't I also be a very nasty person? Couldn't I pursue these goals for very venal self-seeking means and so on. If you've watched the, um, the, the series House of Cards uh, the political drama with Kevin Spacey and uh, Robin Wright and so on um, you often see these, these uh, politicians portrayed as people who uh, actually end up doing good things for the country out of completely self-serving stabbing the opposition in the back uh, terrible motives you know they're horrible people uh, but they end up uh, creating a welfare for work scheme that gets people jobs that otherwise wouldn't have had it or avoiding a war or what have you but they're, they're doing all of those things because it serves their ends <laughs> to do that uh, not because they're uh, selflessly pursuing the good or whatever uh, so that we have this sort of intuition that, that motive and moral character count more in ethics than uh, utilitarianism sort of allows. Uh, so it seems to be something that's a, a good rule of thumb in certain circumstances, but, but not, not really deep enough uh, or uh, sound enough to be a, a sort of holistic moral theory. Indeed, uh, you might mean is that perhaps uh, the only person who could be a perfect utilitarian would be someone like God uh, because only someone like God uh, with uh, you know, foreknowledge would be able to know reliably the outcome of all of his actions morally speaking he can foresee all the consequences of the actions in a way that we can't Anything on uh, utilitarianism that you want to uh, raise or discuss? The example yeah. that, we, uh, that I used to hear about was um, there's a big stadium full of, of people mm. and um, in the centre of the stage you've got a, a mentally handicapped person um, who is uh, dancing for them and uh, he's perfectly happy dancing and thinks they're laughing along mm. with him and they're all laughing at him Right, and, and they think this is all great. In terms of, you have maximised the happiness yes. for all concerned. Everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. Yeah. And yet we would we would all say that actually something morally wrong is taking place here. Yeah. 
And that's the, that's the issue. Yes, yes. That's, that's a great example. That, that pushes it even on from the what about minorities to situations where you know, everyone is happy and yet it seems to be falling, falling short of, of, of morality because it's not taking into, into account motive or, or character. Yeah, that's, that's really good. The virtue ethics, back to uh, Aristotle... Uh, here. He said, uh, good uh, for man, for mankind, is an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. So it's, 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 it's not saying good is what achieves certain outcomes in the world out there. It's saying good is about activity of the soul. It's about my character. In accordance with virtue. Uh, and virtue, hmm, virtue ethics emphasizes one's character and the virtue that one's character embodies. Uh, and Aristotle talked about the way in which many virtues, at least, uh, are what he taught, called the, the golden mean between two extremes of character. So again, it's not so much about thinking about virtue in terms of, of rules that you live up to, but sort of character dispositions. So he said, uh, you know, what, is, what is bravery? Well, it's the golden mean uh, between cowardice, on the one hand, uh, and, um, I've forgotten the, the, the word, uh, the opposite of, of cowardice, um, just uh, unthinking recklessness. Thank you, that's the word. Tip of my tongue. So between recklessness and cowardice is bravery. So that's what you want to to aim at. uh, A soul that will habitually exhibit bravery rather than cowardice or recklessness. So virtue and arete is an excellence in the fulfilment of a particular uh, function or a particular part of your character, if you like. Now, someone with a character that's excellent at functioning selfishly, therefore, of course, is not virtuous. Uh, you need to have both of these things. The character and virtues in virtue theory must be virtuous character, virtuous virtues, uh, i.e. good uh, things to exhibit, good habits to adopt. Uh, what sort of character or whose character gets to define virtue, therefore? And of course, the answers that cultures give to that do shift somewhat over time, although there is a lot of commonality. Um, so recently I've been reading a book by the Australian uh, John Dixon, theologian John Dixon, who wrote a book called Humilitas, looking at the way in which in ancient cultures, Greco-Roman cultures, the virtuous character would not have included the virtue of humility. Um, virtue was, was more about uh, you know, being brave on the battlefield and making a name for yourself and... Uh, beating your enemies uh, and uh, uh, being good for the state, 
taking part in the in the politic of the polos uh, and uh, persuading people to your view through your wonderful rhetoric as you speak in the uh, in the in the in the gathering of your of your uh, democracy you know the democracy of those landowning male non-slaves that get to take part in the democracy because you know those slaves they're just by virtue uh, by by nature born uh, to be slavish and you know it's really it's really best for them that we that we enslave them uh, otherwise you know they wouldn't be able to look after themselves properly just being the slave class that they are and you know women you don't want to get women involved in politics and all that you know that's men's business and so the virtues that they considered to be virtuous not necessarily the ones that, that we do. And John Dixon argues that it was actually, particularly it was, it was, it was Jesus and the coming of Christianity that implanted the idea that humility is a virtue. You know, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples and saying, don't lord it over one another as your rulers do amongst you. You know, the least uh, shall be the greatest, the, 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 the last shall be first, and, and so on. And exhibiting in his character the humility, the, the whole humility of the incarnation. Uh, the hymn in Philippians that talks about him who, you know, though uh, clothed with the, the, the raiment of, of divinity, gave up that splendour to be incarnated and to die on a cross uh, for his creation, for his creatures and so on. Brought in the idea that humility is a virtue. Uh, so these can shift over time. What sort of character, whose character do we look to to define the virtuous character for us becomes the central question within virtue ethics. But of course for the theist, particularly for the Christian, uh, our ready-made answer to this, the obvious answer is, well, it's, it's God's character. Uh, and there's a stability in that because God doesn't just happen to have the character that he has. Uh, it's not like uh, we, we struck it lucky and God has a good character but he could have been a right old rotter, and then you know, life would have been a lot different. But you know, lucky for us, he turned out to have. It's like he has his character necessarily um, as the greatest possible being. That just is his character. His character kind of is the yardstick of, of goodness. Being like God, uh, without seeking to replace God, being in the image of God, being God's vice regents upon the earth, and so on is our proper function as humans. And I think you can see throughout scripture a, a lot of emphasis on stuff that you can interpret in, in virtue ethical terms, particularly when you come onto the New Testament emphasis on, on um, uh, renewal in the image of Christ and putting on Christ, uh, as Paul talks about. But all the way back to you know, Genesis 1, God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. So humanity, male and female, created in the image of God. Uh, it is like um, other religious traditions, of course, had idols, images of gods that they put in their temples. The Jews were considered very weird by the other cultures because when they go into, the Romans conquered the Jewish temple, they go in there and there is no image in the Holy of Holies. Like, where's the image of God? Well, you're looking at them, mate. You know, <laughs> it's you and me. Uh, the creation story can be read as, as uh, in a sense, God establishing his temple and putting his image into it. 
and that's humanity, uh, as we represent him in his uh, in the sacred space of creation. Or just to pick one other passage from the Old Testament, uh, William Blake's picture here of sacrificing the children to uh, the Canaanite god Moloch. Uh, God says, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. This is particularly interesting when you realise that in ancient cultures, to talk about someone's name was not just to talk about a label by which we differentiate them from the person who lives in the next door flat when we're sending a letter. Who should it be delivered to, whatever. Uh, A name uh, really represented character. Um, Hence why it's very significant in the Bible when God changes someone's name. Uh, He's saying, you know, I'm in charge of who you're going to to be, your character, who you're going to become, and so on. and here, it's not, as you might expect in Old Testament terms, you know, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to the fire because that would break the commandment that I gave you, remember, thou shalt not murder. It's like, don't do that because it's breaking a rule. Here we have, don't do that because it would profane the name, i.e. the character of your God. If you do that, other people will get the idea that the kind of the character of the god that you worship is a character that likes that kind of stuff that encourages you to adopt that kind of character don't do that that's uh, leviticus 18:21 and of course jesus in summarizing the 10 commandment tradition again brings it back to the two essential commandments and interesting the two essential commandments They focus on on character. Uh, Love the Lord your God. So he's the one who defines our our character that we're pursuing. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Uh, So you're you're trying to put a sort of holistic picture of, of human nature in pursuit of God's character. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So again, it's about what sort of person should I be? I should be a person defined by love. My love for God, which gives me a context for loving my neighbour. Now, it's not, of course, it's of course not just... Uh, ancient Greeks or modern Christians who can embrace this kind of virtue theory tradition. So the atheist philosopher Colin McGinn, uh, indeed talking about Jesus, says, I still admire many of the teachings of Jesus Christ and find his life exemplary of some important moral truths. Again, it's not just about the teaching, but about the, the, the exemplified character in a lived life that is inspirational. Exemplary of important moral truths, but I long ago rejected the supernatural baggage that accompanies Christian belief. Well, okay, yeah, he's coming from an atheist viewpoint, but you, you, you see the, the interesting point about it's about wh- whose character do I look to to inspire me to become the sort of person I should be becoming? That's a virtue 
ethical position. Or St. Augustine here, who uh, famously uh, said, love God and do what you want. And when you think about that, that's not a uh, libertarian laissez-faire attitude. (laughs) Because if you really love God, as Jesus said, with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength and so on, then what will you want to do? You will want to do the things that God approves of, (laughs) that God loves. Uh, You will uh, love others because he loves them first and so on. So love God and do what you want, said Augustine. But still we might be thinking, yeah, well, it's very well to talk about, you know, oh, just, just be loving, do the loving thing, you know. People being what we are, we could like, well, what really is love, you know? Um, <laughs> what is the loving thing to do? What do you mean? What do you really mean by love? I mean, there's all sorts of... <laughs> well, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, the virtues of God-like love, um, not in any particular translation here. Uh, love is long-suffering. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Patiently endures everything. Trusts God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back but keeps going to the end. And then you might be thinking, yeah, that's beginning to sound a little bit deontological there, Pete. That's beginning to sound a bit like a list of rules. <laughs> well, that's because love has a particular character. And when we pay careful attention to love, we can describe that character. And if you describe the character of love that you're trying to pursue, then, of course, you can turn those particular descriptions into deontological rules Um, a a good person has a good character and a good character uh, tends to behave in a consistent manner towards others in the world and so on that can be described by these particular uh, definitions Uh, and we can therefore pursue those things so I don't think actually there's any necessary conflict between uh, virtue theory and deontology It's just, if you like, that the the virtue theory is the more central concept and the deontology follows from it uh, within a Christian viewpoint. Commandments are, if you like, uh, they're like a trellis that helps a plant to grow into the right shape. It's growing into the right shape that's the thing. Uh, Eventually you could could take away the trellis and the, and the, the plant would stay in the shape that you kind of toperated it into or whatever but whilst it's growing the plant can find having a trellis really useful I think it's like that in our moral development we're, we're really trying to become certain types of people God-like, Christ-like people but it really helps us in our fallen fallibility to have some rules <laughs> now and again uh, but the rules are not the, the, not the thing they're not the point uh, morality is deeper than that. That's why 
characteristic attitudes and actions of a virtuous character can be listed to guide the formation of a virtuous character. So we have the famous Ten Commandments from Scripture, uh, which are a, a, a sort of rule of thumb summary of uh, behaviour. It is obviously, when you start getting into trying to list the rules, it's very hard to be exhaustive or to give rules that cover every situation. Um, and hence you, you get the whole sort of Jewish tradition of elaborating the law uh, and discussing the law and uh, legal thinking. And again, atheists can go this route as well. So here's a new atheist philosopher, A.C. Grayling. He puts forward his own suggestion for ten commandments. Uh, see whether you think he improves on the, the ten the Bible gives us. He says, uh, love well. Seek the good in all things. Harm no others. Think for yourself. Take responsibility. Respect nature. Do your utmost. Be informed. Be kind. Be courageous. Okay, there's nothing there particularly that I want to take issue with, although, again, it's going to become tricky when you're like, respect nature. Okay, well, respect nature. Does that mean I should or should not do fracking or coal mining or ore mining or, uh, you know, what about a ranking of you know, do human rights, are they more important than gorilla rights? You know, there are some people in the world pressing for gorillas to have human rights. Some people in the world pressing for rivers to have human rights. Um, well, that would be respecting nature, would it, or not? You know, respecting it as it is. How do we understand that it is? Again, we see these questions get linked to bigger philosophical questions. Of this uh, typical uh, sign from the swimming pool, I, I always chuckle at swimming pool uh, signs because I immediately I go to them and I look at what is banned. I, you know, no running, no pushing. Uh, no shouting, no bombing, no swimming in diving area, etc. So I think, oh, great, it's fine for me if I want to set up a barbecue on a floating island in the middle of the <laughs> and serve tequilas for everyone. Because it's, it's not banned. <laughs> uh, so it kind of shows the shortcomings of just having a sort of list of do's and don'ts, useful as that can be. As 2 Corinthians 3 6 says, for the letter kills. But the spirit gives life. So I would uh, suggest that uh, deontological and virtue ethics can really meet in our ideal agent, God, Christ. And indeed, the virtuous person will surely uh, fulfill their obvious moral duties with regard for the foreseeable consequences of their actions, at least or the, the consequences that seem very likely of their actions, uh, particularly how those actions would contribute to the formation of their virtuous character. Um, I mean, when I'm trying to form a virtuous character by adopting certain habits, uh, well, so that those actions become second nature to me, well, obviously, there's an element of prediction and consequence involved there. So if I adopt this habit, the consequence will probably be that my character will be formed in a certain way. 
Um, so there's a certain amount of consequentialism in there, but you see it's not aimed at thinking that the consequences are the main thing. It's aimed at thinking that my virtuous character is the central thing that I'm pursuing here. Um, so it can be a matter of sort of emphasis in how you sort of lock these different ways of looking at ethics uh, together. Uh, Garrett J. DeVis, in his book Doing Philosophy as a Christian, puts it this way. He says, virtue theory is not exclusive of consequentialist or deontological considerations. Virtue theory, in focusing on the development of character marked by dispositions to virtuous behaviour, accords supremely well with ethical ideas about responsibility for motives as well as actions and consequences. Uh, so you might be getting the idea that, that uh, like DeVise there, I quite favour putting virtue theory at the heart of my ethical thinking and uh, using other stuff as it, sort of, as it fits with that and is useful to that. And I, and I think you can certainly can read the Bible as fitting with that kind of view of, of things. So when we're entering into this, this sort of ethical thinking, and I've, I've shown examples of where secular thinkers adopt uh, these sort of approaches as well, I do think we have some advantages from the, the Judeo-Christian tradition. The Bible focuses upon virtue ethics. It's nurtured by deontological rules of thumb, like the Ten Commandments, etc., and particularly by the lived example of Christ, the Good Shepherd here, thereby putting consequentialist thinking in perspective. It's not the main thing. And Jesus says, don't, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. Think reasonably about it. Do what you can about it, but don't worry. And it's like, okay, I take into account what seems, what seems plausible that I can take into account, make my decision, and then leave it up to God. You know, I, I can't predict what the consequences of my actions today might be in 100 years' time. Have you ever seen the film Sliding Doors or the Doctor Who episode Turn Left, where Donna turns left instead of right? Uh, you see how uh, large consequences can come from very small changes. It's like chaos theory, you know, because she does or doesn't manage to get onto the tube train in time. Her life goes in two completely different uh, directions because one thing leads to another thing, which leads to another thing, uh, uh, and so on. And I think if you were thinking in terms of, oh, well, you know, the, the right thing to do, the, the good is defined by what brings certain consequences, whatever they may be. It's like, well, I am in no position to know confidently what any of the, the consequences of my actions overall are going to be. Uh, I think utilitarianism ultimately would lead you to a sort of mm, giving up on, on, on ethics, really. Uh, because it does seem arbitrary to draw the line at, 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 at where you can co even confidently, fairly confidently predict, um, because you know that your actions are going to have a ripple effect throughout history. And why should not those events, uh, if, if the right, the good, is defined by the consequences by the events, surely those events do matter. And yet I can't take them into account because I'm too limited. Uh, so why not 
from a Christian view, well, leave, leave that up to God, who's the only one who can, through his foreknowledge, through his middle knowledge, take that into account. Um, he's the one who, before all creation, can see, um, at least according to some, some theories of divine knowledge, God can even see what would happen in circumstances that never actually come about. He sees what would happen in all of the possible situations that he could create uh, and can providentially manage the world through um, creating us in a certain circumstance that will lead to certain foreseen results. That's not him um, determining us. That's him allowing us to shape things through our free will. Um, But also being able to have a measure of providence and control over that because he knows what we would freely do given this circumstance, that circumstance and the other. So the Bible also, I think, it's useful to see it as providing a deep analysis of human vice. Um, Perhaps a more culturally sensitive way of talking about sin, talking in terms of vices a proven relational framework for positive change. It's one, it's one thing for an ethical theory to say, well, this is the sort of person you should be, or these are the sort of actions you should habitually follow, these kind of rules or whatever. Well, great, but how do I do it? <laughs> Who will rescue me from this body of death? <laughs> Thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we, we engage in positive change uh, through the, the, the Christian tradition gives us an appropriate vision of the right, uh, invites our right in, intention, our choice to enter into that kind of a life and offers practical means for spiritual transformation in community with, with God and, the, and with his church. So again, let's... Uh, pause there and see if we have any questions or points you'd like to throw in okay so let's uh, think a bit about moral responsibility that's obviously uh, a key issue for ethical thinking, uh, and yet it, it's not a topic that we traditionally cover in ethics. I mean, this is philosophical anthropology, technically speaking. Do we have free will or not? What do you mean by free will and so on? Uh, and yet our intuitions about free will deeply impact what we think about morality. So if we define moral responsibility, like praise and blame here, uh, moral responsibility, if you have moral responsibility, you're, you're answerable for your actions and you're the proper subject of praise or blame. So, let's think this through. Who is morally responsible in this story? Here is criminal mastermind Professor Irritating. It's a very B-class villain, you see. Criminal mastermind Professor Irritating, he wanted some money uh, so he devised a fiendishly elaborate plot to rob a bank. Okay. Here is his plot. First of all, he hypnotised the night guard. 
Hiddenheiser night guard, to unlock the front door whenever he heard his watch chime midnight, and to lock it again an hour later, whilst being totally oblivious to anything that happened in the meantime. And forget that I've hypnotised you. <laughs> okay? And then, Professor Irritating programmed his hench robots. Got to have hench robots. He programmed them to go to the bank at midnight, enter the open door, crack the combination lock on the bank's safe, and bring back the contents after locking the safe behind them so the guard wouldn't notice anything amiss. So who is morally responsible for the lack of money in the vault the following morning? Let me ask you, do you think that the hench robots are morally culpable for the crime? No. Why, why are they not morally culpable for the crime? They, they actually emptied the money out of the vault. They're robots. They're robots. But what, what, what relevant difference does that make? And not sentient beings. And they didn't know what they were doing. Ah, okay. Well, in which case, you must... Uh, maybe uh, the, uh, the guard here... I mean, you think he's morally responsible for... I mean, he was... Uh, he was conscious the whole time. But he's been made to act against his moral... Right, so he, he's been made to act. So, in a sense, it wasn't, it wasn't him acting, even though he did it. It's Professor Irritating morally responsible for the crime. Yes, okay, so you think Professor Irritating is morally responsible. Quote from a uh, Law Journal article here. Uh, blameworthiness, uh, they're talking about the genetic defence in law, uh, interestingly enough, and they say blameworthiness must be evaluated from actions based on choice. Therefore, an involuntary or compelled action is not worthy of blame. So the robots, the hypnotised night guard, their actions were involuntary and or compelled, not worthy of blame. But uh, we're prepared to say Professor Irritating is worthy of blame because his actions presumably were not involuntary or compelled. Um, but what if I tell you that Professor Irritating, I mean, he came from a very poor family uh, and he was teased mercilessly at school not only for his balding head, uh, but for wearing cheap clothes and being a bit of a geek, you know, member of the science club and all that. Under this environmental pressure, he resolved to use his genius to show those cruel kids what for and to rob banks so that he could afford cool clothing. This is his motivation. Now, does this excuse Professor Irritating's actions? Do you think it excuses them to any degree? Do, do you look more kindly upon him now that you know this, this background than you did before? A bit. A bit. So you might, you might say, he's, would, you're, he's still responsible, but do you think he's, he's less responsible than you thought he was? No, he's no. just as responsible. Just as responsible. Just as responsible. You just have an understanding of it. 
Okay, so what a distinction between understanding his motives and explaining them, yeah? Isn't there an interesting point, though? We, we feel sorry for him because mm. of his context, but hasn't there been a couple... I don't know if you may, may not have heard of this. There have been a couple of cases in America where rich children or mm. teenagers have been... Uh, got lighter sentences or been let off committing crime because they suffer from a, a phrase, affluenza. Yes. Because huh. because they don't know about responsibility because mm. they've had everything handed to them on a plate. Yeah. That's almost the exact same thing as in Tomway. Yeah, in context, yeah. But the other way around. Yes. We would deem that wrong, affluenza. Yes. Yeah. It's still, I suppose there's still the idea of some sort of mitigating circumstance. Uh, we have this, this mitigating circumstance phrase in, in law. We were saying, that's against sentencing, not against the... Uh, yeah, so, but that's to do with how much we punish someone. Yeah. Uh, and since we think that punishment ought to fit the crime, I think that reflects the idea that, that the degree of responsibility can vary depending upon your circumstances. Guilty, and then you only look at mitigating or um, the opposite, mitigating, aggravating circumstances. Yeah. After that point, so the, the 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 culpability is assessed. Yes. And after that, there is a there is yeah. a you know a, are we going to raise this, this yeah. sentence up or lower it depending on what, yeah. what different bits of evidence we then mm. again put in place that isn't considered when deciding on the culpability of the crime. Yeah, but I, I think that reflects the idea that, first of all, we're going to sort out the, the idea of are you culpable or not? Are you responsible or not? But then we bring in the idea that, that there are degrees of responsibility reflected in, in the punishment. So, yes, you either are or are not responsible, but responsibility is the spectrum which we reflect in punishment. Uh, what if I tell you that Professor Irritating had been genetically engineered by his father, Professor Irritating Senior, <laughs> with a, a genetically inculcated desire to rob banks? If that's possible. I don't think that's possible, but just go with this. It's a sci-fi story. Uh, would Professor Irritating Junior be guilty then if he's been you know, genetically programmed with this desire to accumulate wealth or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're going to want to ask questions like, how specific is that desire? How strong is that desire? Um, couldn't you, uh, noticing that you have this desire to rob banks, but knowing that robbing is wrong, shouldn't you have gone to, some, to your doctor and said, doctor, doctor, I've got this terrible problem that you need to help me with. Did you do that? <laughs> or did you just give in? You know? Um, yeah. Is he being programmed like the robots? Right. Or does he just have a, yeah. a greater propensity yeah. to wish to do yeah. kind of thing? And, and your, your answer to that excellent question is partly going to depend upon your answer to the question of what you think a human being is. Because, of course, there are people who think that human beings just are genetically programmed meat robots. That's what a person is. Um, I don't think that's what a person is. I think there's more to us than that. But you see, your view of what a person is is going to affect 
your ideas here. Uh, certainly, I would then say Professor Irritating Senior is, uh, is guilty. So here's another story. You're walking along this lovely beach under the cliff. A pebble sails through the air and hits you on the head. Ow, bump. You think, why have I been, why have I been hit on the head? Uh, well, suppose you think, uh, oh, I know, I know. Uh, I suppose that in the top of the cliff, right on the edge, once upon a time, there lived a pebble. And over the years of, of weather, soil erosion, rain and ice forming and so on, the pebble gradually became more and more exposed to the elements. And it was teetering on the edge of the cliff. And today, as I'm walking along this beach, it's a bit blustery, maybe a, maybe a gust of wind in just the right direction just happened to come along and hoofed, to borrow a word from A.A. Milne, hoofed the stone off the top of the cliff. And the laws of gravity, described by Newton's laws, took over and it fell, bounced off the cliff, described a perfect parabola through the air, and by coincidence happened to coincide with my head. Oh, that is so naughty of you. Soil erosion and wind. Yes, when I added <laughs> that reaction onto the end of that story, there's a, a chuckle and a grimace and a sort of, uh-oh, call for the men in white coats kind of reaction, isn't there? On the other hand, so as you're walking along this, this uh, pebble, hits you on the head, you think, why have I been hit on the head? You look up to the top of the cliff, there's me at the top of the cliff, pile of stones in one hand, getting ready to... Lob another one. Take that, RAF chaplains. Ha <laughs> ha. You know. Uh, and you point at me and you say things along the lines of, Ooh, that was very naughty, Peter. You shouldn't behave like that. And they think, intuitively speaking, we think that the latter case is entirely reasonable in terms of our reaction to the situation, but the former case, blaming the wind and the weather and the soil erosion and so on and is not reasonable. And that's obviously because we think there's a germane difference between the two sets of circumstances that led up to our pain. Both sets of circumstances caused us pain. But only one is blameworthy. And, and only one is, is morally responsible. Both are responsible, but only one is morally responsible for the pain. Now, most people intuitively think the stone is not responsible for my pain because it's not free. Uh, most people think I am responsible because I am free. See, I, I chose to throw the stone at you. The stone didn't choose to get thrown. Uh, so responsibility, being answerable for your actions, the proper subject of praise and blame, it seems intuitively speaking depends upon this idea that the thing we're blaming has freedom of the will to some degree at least. Um, what philosophers typically call libertarian free will uh, as opposed to determinism, liberty as opposed to determinism. Determinism says every, when one thing just causes another thing, just following your programming or whatever, following the rules of nature like the wind and soil erosion. Libertarian free will says we can make genuine choices that are not the inevitable outcome of previous causes. We're not determined to do this, that, or the other. Uh, that's our common uh, intuition. And it comes in degrees. 
Uh, I will now turn over from 3D me to 2D me because I have an illustration. Libertarian free will is not necessarily an all or nothing affair, like a light bulb attached to a switch. It's either off and you have no freedom of will at all, or on, and you have complete freedom of will that you just find really easy to exercise. You could instead think of libertarian free will by analogy from a light bulb that's attached to a dimmer switch. Now, the dimmer switch might be turned down really quite low, so that although you've got freedom of will, you find it very difficult to exercise because it's being constrained. But nonetheless, the light bulb is still on rather than off. You still do have some freedom of will. Another analogy is to, to think of our exercise of freedom as a bit like swimming in the sea and then the tide starts going out, coming in. Perhaps we're in a tidal estuary somewhere where um, once the tide is going out, however hard we try and swim, it overpowers us and we get swept away. But maybe we could still choose to, to strike out at an angle or try and reach shore at an angle and sort of we get close to what we are aiming at. But when the tide's not moving, I can just swim easily in any direction I like. And uh, so my, my ability to exercise my freedom of will can be constrained more or less depending upon my material circumstances, depending on things like my upbringing, my, my genetic predispositions and so on. But taking those things into account is not to say... I don't have free will, I don't have any moral responsibility. It's just to be sensitive to the fact that to say you were free will you were free, you were responsible is not a an all or nothing affair necessarily. Um, so it's a bit of a, a sort of straw man view of freedom of will to say things like, Oh, you, you know, you say people are free and they're responsible, but you know, oh they had a terrible upbringing and so they're not responsible or uh, what about their, you know, they've got the warrior gene, so they've got you know, an excess of dopamine in their brain and therefore uh, he's not responsible for robbing the corner store, my lord. You know, there have been cases where people make this sort of genetic defence. Um, Francis Collins, who's the Christian scientist who head up the Human Genome Project, reported about they had a, they had a conference in the States of like, uh, scientists and legal figures talking about this issue precisely. Uh, and he said, um, look, we've already discovered one major genetic determinant of criminal, uh, of criminal activity. And it's, it's probably the most powerful uh, influence upon whether or not you engage in criminal activity that we're ever going to find. Um, and that's called being male. <laughs> uh, you know, males are overwhelmingly more likely... <laughs> to be criminal than females. And yet, uh, anyone who goes up to the court and says, oh, no, my, my lord, please uh, relieve my client of responsibility for robbing the corner store. After all, he couldn't help it, he's a man. <laughs> says, uh, we're not going to get the time of day for that. Is there any, any, any other sort of influences upon uh, our behavioural predispositions that we find are probably going to be less influential than all of the influences, uh, you know, chemically speaking and so on, that come with being a man. Uh, and if that doesn't relieve you of moral responsibility, then, then other things are probably not going to, 
either. So this is a Immanuel Kant, pretty good practical reason, said that freedom must be the foundation of all moral laws and consequent responsibility. I mean, these things don't make sense without some notion of uh, some freedom uh, at the root of them. Uh, again, another uh, quote from uh, Halwani and Krupp's uh, The Genetic Defence in the Health Law Journal. It says, we start from the position that criminal punishment must be proportionate to blameworthiness and that blameworthiness must be evaluated from actions based on choice and therefore involuntary or compelled action is not worthy of blame. But predispositions, influences, etc., they don't believe you of that moral responsibility, although they can be taken into account because they're not uh, compelled. As you said, you know, how strong is that genetic influence uh, that uh, irritating senior has programmed into his son and so on? Uh, they're probably not compelling. As I say, some people do view humans in a different way <laughs> than others. So here's Richard Dawkins, I think very logically and methodically working through his idea of what humanity is, the nature of the world, and, and what that would mean for the, the legal system. He says, human brains, though they may not be, work in the same way as man-made computers, are as surely governed by the laws of physics. So, like, you are your brain. You don't have a soul or anything on a naturalistic view. You are your brain. Your brain works like a computer. It just follows its programming, follows the laws of physics... When a computer malfunctions, we don't punish it. We track down the problem and fix it. Isn't the murderer just a machine with a defective component? Or a defective upbringing, defective education, defective genes? Since concepts like blame and responsibility are banded about freely, haha, where human wrongdoers are concerned, but doesn't a, a mechanistic, materialistic view of the nervous system, of what a person is, doesn't that make nonsense of the very idea of responsibility? Um, well, basically, he says, yes, it does. He says, any crime is, in principle, to be blamed on antecedent conditions, not, not the criminal. Antecedent conditions acting through the accused physiology, hereditary environment. People are just conduits for the outworking of the laws of physics, determining what happens. He says, why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers when we should, and again, interesting use of the word here, does this fit with his philosophy, <laughs> when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing. Now, I, you know, I'm, that's a shocking conclusion to get to, but I think you can see if you start where he starts and you rigorously follow through the logic of where he's going, you say, yeah, I'd have to end up in the same place if I started in the same place. Uh, thank goodness I, I don't. I mean, he's really arguing this. He says, purely physical things, like the stone in our story, lack moral responsibility, maybe because they lack free will. Two, humans are purely physical things. Therefore, humans lack moral responsibility. Well, yeah, that's clearly logically valid. Um, I, think we, I think I agree with premise number one. 
I disagree with premise number two. I think that's just, you know, humans are purely physical things. Uh, no. And one reason to think that is because you can reverse this by saying, isn't it just blatantly obvious that child murderers should be blamed? <laughs> they are morally responsible. Uh, therefore, they do have free will, given the linkage. Therefore, they can't be just material things. But even on the grounds of his own argument, how can he say they're faulty? Well, yeah. Well, how can he argue, couldn't they just genetically program to reduce the excess population? Yeah. You know, how can we say that murder is faulty from his own? Yeah. You can't. There's no, there's no way things should be. That's the usual thing, isn't it? Yeah, there's no design plan that we're meant to be following or exhibiting or whatever. It's isn't it? I mean, if you're going to go into a, a purely scientific yeah. viewpoint, we are but another um, yes. group of animals on the planet, and some animals kill their young. Yeah. They're just natural predators. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, when he, and again, as I say, when he says, why do we do this when we should do you know, treat them this other way, given my philosophy. So what do you mean by I should? Sorry, I, I can't. I'm just following my genetic programming that has predispositioned me to blame them. <laughs> you know, I'm not being... I'm, you know, sort of saying, oh, come on, be reasonable, think about it. See, <laughs> sort of implies a view of humanity that, again, doesn't fit into his philosophy, does it? I think that takes us up to our coffee uh, break. So we'll... Pause there and reconvene later. Thank you very much. Right, so we're still um, on the theme, really, of uh, free will, but more broadly, our understanding of people and how our understanding of what people are really has a major impact on our ethical thinking. And I want to introduce two of um, Aristotle's traditional concepts of causation. He had four categories of, uh, of cause, uh, two of them. Uh, efficient cause, on the left here, where we're seeking an answer to the question, what caused X? And it's particularly the kind of cause that we look for in modern science, uh, especially in process sciences where we're uncovering uh, the rules by which ongoing processes within the world work. Uh, so, um, you know, Newton's laws of motion, thermodynamics, all of that kind of stuff. What caused the billiard ball to go into the hole? Well, it was the fact that, uh, you know, it had kinetic energy passed to it by the previous billiard ball knocking into it at the right angle and all the forces worked as they do. On the other hand, uh, we have what Aristotle called a teleological cause. This is, again, from the Greek telos meaning goal or end directed. Uh, where we're seeking an answer to the question, sort of, what is X for? Uh, if we trace back that uh, billiard ball example, we've got a billiard ball falling into the hole because it was hit by the previous billiard ball. However many billiard balls we track that back through, because ultimately we, we know that that came from a ball being struck by a piece of wood that was being held by a person who was aiming to try and achieve something. Uh, in the game of billiards that's being played. Um, we can explain the behaviour of all the balls in terms of efficient causality. Can we explain the behaviour of the person with the, the stick? I forget if it's called a cue or whatever it is in billiards. Uh, in the same terms. Now obviously, if you have Richard Dawkins 
understanding of, of people as sort of uh, meat robots governed by their uh, naturally selected programmed uh, brain computers, uh, then you might very well say, yes, really, we should reduce everything ultimately to efficient causality. Any talk that we employ of, uh, I was trying to pot the black or whatever, uh, is just a sort of lazy shorthand that must ultimately be sort of translatable into proper physical scientific talk. Um, on the other hand, we may think that that's not the case. Uh, so again, here's a video illustration of the difference between these uh, two uh, ways of talking about causality. So it seems to us that there's a moral distinction, say, between running over a cat accidentally with your car and running it over deliberately. It's one thing if I'm reversing the car to the garage and I take all the normal precautions and I look in my mirrors, I don't see anything, I reverse the car and next door's cat has a death wish. And I go, flat cat. Well, okay, it's sad, but it was an accident. Uh, you wouldn't blame me 
for the flatness of the cat. Even though I was part of the series of efficient cause and effect that caused the cat to be flat. On the other hand, if I'm driving down the road and I see next door's cat and I deliberately aim the car at the cat and floor the throttle and I run over the cat, then you might very well hold me blameworthy for the flatness of the cat. So that's an important moral distinction. And yet can efficient causal talk, uh, without thinking of teleology as something that can't be reduced to that efficient causal talk, can efficient causal talk on its own make this distinction that we commonly draw? I don't think it can. And it's not even enough for us to bring in motive and to say, well, the the problem with this is, uh, okay, in one case when you accidentally ran the cat over, you know, you were part of the efficient causes that ran the cat over in both cases. But um, what about your motive? You know, you didn't, you didn't desire the running over of the cat. But that's not enough. Suppose, suppose I do have the general desire to run over cats. Uh, and I'm in the garage and I look in my mirrors and I don't, you know, because I don't want to run any, over any people. Uh, and I don't see anything. And I reverse the car and I run over the cat. Well, then I had the desire to run over the cat. And I did run over the cat. And I was part of the series of vision causes that ran over the cat. But I still ran it over accidentally. The cat wasn't run over because I intentionally did something to achieve that goal. Um, so talking about my motives isn't enough. I, actually, we actually, I have to make a choice to try and achieve that motive uh, in reality and that seems to be a matter of teleology not efficient causality so again the the stone illustration being answerable for the actions we have this intuition it depends upon the fact that I chose to throw the stone at you I'm trying to hurt you uh, with it uh, we assume rather than if I were blindfolded at the top of the cliff. And someone had said to me, you know, it, it, you know, it's fine, go ahead, throw. We just want to, you know, see how far you can throw these stones. Uh, and I trust them. And, you know, I accidentally, I can accidentally hit you. Uh, even though I'm intending to throw stones. But I wasn't intending to hurt you by throwing the stone. Uh, that's the intention that counts. So we think that there's this crucial difference between cases of just series of efficient causes, however complex, achieving a certain outcome and there actually being a a deliberate intention. And there's intentionality, there's freedom. Both of these things uh, seem to be bound up with one another and to transcend what will fit within the the materialistic, scientific box. So as we, we looked at uh, Richard Dawkins' argument, as I said, you can, re- you can just reverse that argument, keep it in the same logical validity, and just argue that, yeah, okay, we, we agree with him that purely materi- material physical things lack moral responsibility, but it seems to me more obvious that I can be morally responsible for my actions than it does 
than the claim that I'm a purely material thing is. That, that's not at all obvious to me. Um, and indeed, I doubt that Richard Dawkins could come up with any premises in, a, in an argument for the claim that I'm a, a purely material object. To convince me that argument would not only have to be logically valid, which I know by rational insight, not scientific knowledge, <laughs> but also it would have to depend upon premises that were more convincing to me than my rational intuition that sometimes I do things that are wrong and that I'm blameworthy for. And I find it really hard to imagine what those premises would be. So if purely physical things lack moral responsibility, but I can be morally responsible, then it follows that I'm not a purely physical thing. It follows that the worldview of, of materialistic naturalism is not true. I'm more than a computer made of meat, as Marvin Minsky famously described it as. as. So... That's the end of our little section on, on freedom of the will and people and moral responsibility and teleology, etc. Et uh, and again, any comeback, comments, questions? So to make something moral, are you arguing that your motivation is important but also your intent? Yes. Yes, because the, clearly there are cases where I can have the motivation to achieve uh, a bad outcome. But the fact that I achieved that outcome is, is nonetheless accidental. Uh, and so, although you would say, well, you're, you're a nasty person because you're not sad that you ran the cat over, nonetheless, it was still an accident that you ran the cat over. You didn't do it deliberately. So you weren't, you're not responsible, morally speaking, for the cat being run over. Uh, what you're morally responsible for is having inculcated a character which desires the death of all cats, or, you know, what have you, <laughs> rather than the specific instance that we're talking about. And similarly, your intent might have been to hit you in the head with a stone, but your motivation <coughs> could have been to stop you walking into uh, an area of quicksand or whatever. Right, yeah, or, to st or to stop you from knifing someone yeah. or... Yeah, yeah, so it's this combination uh, of things because you can, you can have one without the other and fail to be morally responsible. Yeah. Yeah, okay, well, uh, back to the, the, the again, yeah. Ooh, abortion, it's, you know, it's a hackneyed, it's what we talk about in GCSE, RE lessons and so on, but I hope we'll do it a little bit of a deeper. Uh, level in there, and really, I, I'm taking this as a sort of off the shelf, it'll be a familiar issue. But I want to say again how thinking philosophically about ethical issues actually very soon leads you out of strictly this is about ethics to this is about our broader issues of our world view. Uh, and so, getting into ethical discussion with people is an opportunity to broaden out the discussion and to point these kind of things out that very soon move us on to territory like, well, you know, what do you think a person is? Are, are you just a material thing? Or do you think there's some sort of supernatural? Uh, that's the, the basic difference. And then you can also get on talking about specifically what kind of supernatural? Um, who is your, who grounds, you know, your concept of, of virtuous character? Um, do you just pick that in a culturally determined way that just changes over the ages and there's no real right or wrong, or is there some sort of fixed absolute of a morally good character? 
say, God. Um, we get into uh, very soon issues of, is there a God? What, you know, what kind of beings are we? What kind of world do we live in? Um, how do we know what we know? Is science the be-all and end-all of everything? And so on. So the treatment of the unborn, an applied ethical question, of course, uh, and we could think of this in terms of a spectrum. Uh, uh, is abortion, per se, um, A to F, is it uh, always impermissible? Should we just follow the rule, never abort anything? Or is it almost always impermissible, but with very few ex- exceptions? Sort of allowing some exceptions, but not very many. Or we could say, well, it's generally impermissible, but there are some exceptions. Like maybe there's quite a, a, a number of uh, hard cases and exceptions that we ought to make loopholes in, a, in our sort of general band for. Or we could say, well, it's generally permissible. But there are some exceptions to that permissibility. This is crossing the line here. Uh, we might say it's almost always permissible to abort with very few exceptions. Or we might say, it's always permissible to you know, abort away. You know. On this scale, people will fall in different places, of course. And I think probably there's very few people at the, at the bookends, and people will cluster more around the middle there somewhere. Well, Emmanuel... Kant, as philosophers do, uh, put in a complicated philosophical way what Jesus said more simply with the golden rule. Uh, He put it this way. He said, act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, always at the same time as an end and never merely as a means to an end. Teleology here, but do you treat something as a means to an end? Are you treating a person just as if they were a tool for accomplishing some sort of task and it's the accomplishing of the task that you're valuing and not the, not the tool. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with treating people as a means to an end. You are treating me currently as a means to an end of holding a, a day thinking about ethics. Well, that's fine, so long as you don't treat me merely as a means to an end. Yeah? It's the merely uh, that really counts there. Uh, you also value me as an end in and of myself. Give me coffee and things like this. You know. uh, so that's all well and good, but well, let me show you a, cl- a clip that I've clutched together from uh, uh, the island, Ewan McGregor, Scarlett Johansson. Uh, Michael Bay, before he was into uh, Transformers, I think this was, uh, but still, he, he does a film that's, it's a really weird film, it's kind of one half Logan's Run from the 1970s, and all sort of philosophical and everything, and then the second half, they decide, oh, that's enough of the thinky-thinky stuff, let's have a great big car chase. <laughs> so there's something for everyone. Uh, but he, basically the plot is in the near future there's a private uh, medical company that's hiring out its services to uh, those who can afford it, the rich, uh, to have themselves cloned uh, and to use their clones as a source of uh, donor material uh, for them you know, in order to keep them healthy. And uh, the company says, don't, you know, don't worry, we, we keep your clones from ever sort of becoming conscious. We grow them up to adulthood so the organs will fit and everything, but they're, they're basically brain dead. Uh, so don't worry about it, they don't count. Um, and of course, it turns out that the, the company are wrong about this and uh, Scarlett Johansson and Ewan McGregor are, go and escape and 
hence the chase movie bit. But here's the philosophical bit. <laughs> it's a product in every way that matters. Or is it? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, of course, it's not in the film. But you know, this is a serious philosophical question here. I mean, it raises what question must we answer before we can even think about applying Kant's ethical norm. Kant's saying, okay, here's a simple uh, normative ethic. It's basically the golden rule. Uh, always treat human beings as means to, uh, as ends in themselves and not merely as a means to an end. Uh, and then you and uh, Sean Bean's character comes along and says, okay, I've got, I've got this clone of you, um, but it's in a persistent vegetative state. It's, it's not thinking, it's not loving, it's not anticipating the future or anything. So if you get lung cancer, I will just chop out your lungs, chop out the lungs from your clone, swap them in, and you'll be fine. Pay me money. Uh, would, you know, would you take up that medical insurance, as it were, should you? Uh, well, Emmanuel Kant says, well, no, well, that would be terrible. You're treating uh, this, this human being as a means to, uh, just as a means to the end of your health. That's terrible. Um, but Sean Bean says, hang on a minute, treating what human being? This isn't a human being, this is an agnate. I've coined this term. This is your you know, p- persistent vegetative clone. It's not a human being because it's not doing this, it's not doing that, it's not doing the other. So your ethical norm doesn't apply here. Well, or does it? That comes down to how do we define who gets to count as being a human being? Um, what is the right way to define a person? Who gets to count here? Um, what you think something is plays an important role in how you think it's right to treat it. Here I have a, uh, a watering can, a cute little kitty cat. Lots of cats in this presentation. Cute little kitty cat and a hammer. Now, if I take the hammer to my, my hammer to my watering can and I repeatedly hit the watering can with the hammer, do you think I have done anything immoral? No. If I take my hammer to my kitty cat and repeatedly apply the hammer to the kitty cat, do you think I've done something morally wrong? Yes. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> good, good. This, this is the time when we, we, uh, we weed out the psychopaths in the group. Um, so, clearly we think there's some relevant moral difference between the, uh, the can and the cat that justifies that reaction. But, you know, we could go into a long conversation about well, what, what is that uh, difference? How do we uh, define it? Uh, Sean Bean... Uh, is uh, defining personhood in terms of the ability to, to do or experience certain things. But that's not the only way to define what a person is. Well, here, back to the abortion question, let me um, mount some arguments for position C, which is that abortion is generally impermissible, but with some exceptions. And I'm not going to go into what those exceptions are or should be. I just want to mount an argument for a general caution towards abortion without thinking that you have to have a, a, a blanket ban or a very, even a very strict uh, approach 
to the issue. Um, one could perhaps uh, mount further arguments that would tighten down the loopholes and go further than this, uh, but I want to give some arguments to say that our position should be at least this, as it were. So again, let's take this. Premise one, uh, Kant's rule, uh, you shouldn't treat a person as merely a means to an end, or uh, we could put in the rule, uh, it's wrong to take a person's life without sufficient reason. That's from the, from the Ten Commandments, don't commit murder. We define murder as taking another person's life without sufficient cause. Uh, premise two, if and when a human being is a person, then premise one applies to them from which it would follow that if and when a human being is a person, then you shouldn't treat that life as merely a means to an end or blah, 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 and that would imply that you shouldn't abort it, generally speaking, without sufficient reason uh, for killing it. But other people, you know, the, the, the key bit of the premise to here is if and when a human being is a person, and this is the green, how do we define what gets to be a person, even when, even when a human being gets to be a person? Because you might say that clone, well, it, what, it's a human clone, you know, it's not a Kit Kat, kitty cat clone, <laughs> uh, it's a clone of a human being, it's a human clone. But is it a person? Uh, this is a distinction that ethicists uh, introduced to this discussion. And there are those who would at least argue for uh, the position D, that abortion is generally permissible, maybe with some restrictions. How might they do that? Well, here's an example. This is from an article in the Daily Mail in March 2012. Uh, Doctors should have a right to kill unwanted or disabled babies at birth as they are not a real person, claims former Oxford academic. Philosopher and medical ethicist uh, Francesca Minerva argues that killing a newborn is little different to aborting in the womb. Minerva argues that a young baby is not a real person and so killing it in the first days after birth is little different to aborting it in the womb. Writing the Journal of Medical Ethics. You might think it's astounding that this sort of thing can be said in a journal of medical ethics, but there we go. Uh, Dr. Minerva and co-author Alberto uh, Ghiblini, uh, a University of Milan bioethicist, argue that, quote, after-birth abortion, what I would call infanticide, uh, should be permissible in all cases in which abortion is, and they state that, like an unborn child, a newborn has yet to develop hopes, goals, and dreams, and so, while clearly human, is not a person. See, they're using Sean Bean's definition of what, you know, you have to be able to do certain things in order to qualify as a person. Someone uh, to qualify, uh, not a person, i.e. someone with a moral right to life. So they grant that Kant's rule applies to people. They're just saying Kant's rule doesn't apply to babies in the womb or even to newborn babies because they're not persons yet because they can't do this, that, the other on their list. In contrast, of course, parents and siblings and society at large have aims and plans that could be affected by the arrival of the child, and so their interests should come first, because they have interests. 
And again, you can kind of see, if you start from the position that they do, that's kind of where it leads you. So, it all depends on what you mean by person. Is the correct way to define a person in terms of what X can do? Or, to suggest an alternative approach, maybe the best way to define a person might be just simply in terms of what X is. You're going to say X is a person because you know, it may, and it may not, it may develop or it has free will, hopes, goals, dreams, etc., as Minerva argues. Or might we say X is a person because it is or it has a soul or a mind or a spirit made in the image of God. And that uh, soul or mind or spirit we may say it has the ultimate capacities for exhibiting free will and hopes and dreams and so on, but it doesn't have to be exhibiting those qualities in order to be the kind of thing that it is. And it's being the kind of thing that it is that is morally relevant rather than its ability to exhibit potentially those things. Um, you know... You might say, what about, what about a person in a persistent vegetative state or in a coma or something, presuming there's no brain activity showing? And they're not exhibiting any of these person-defining qualities. Does that mean we can just go around all the hospitals killing off all the coma patients? Right? Then Minerva might say, oh, no, that's because you know, they might wake up. And when they wake up, they would exhibit these things. Yeah, well, they might wake up. But, but of course, if I kill them, they're not going to wake up. So there's no problem, because <laughs> they never will exhibit these things, so I can treat them how I like. Um, you know. <laughs> uh, so this, because you can do things, or because you are the kind of thing that you are, there's a major distinction in medical ethics, uh, particularly in this whole area of treatment of the unborn, treatment of uh, those in persistent vegetative states, euthanasia, etc., this gets us into questions like, um, A, when does the organic life of a human being begin? Uh, when does organic life first exist? It's not quite the same question of when does the organic life of an individual human organism begin? You might be tempted to say, well, it's when sperm meets egg. We have organic life starting but it's not necessarily the organic life of, of an individual human being because that might go on to divide into triplets. Um, so at what stage does it become three lives instead of... You know, is it always three organic lives even before? It doesn't seem to be any way of telling that at least. And C, question C, when does an individual human person first exist given... We can make this distinction between being a human being and being a person. We have to face that question that, well, maybe there's a distinction between being an individual human or organism and being an individual human person with right to life and so on. Is there anything real about a person, something essential to their personhood, over and above their brain or body? And of course, Dawkins's of the world are going to say no. Uh, I'm going to say yes, that's going to imply some kind of dualism, some kind of view that there's something different from merely the physical self, 
to the self. There's some kind of supernatural, spiritual, non-material something, call it what you will, as opposed to the view of those who say, no, it's just, you're just physical. Physical is all there is. And, but of course, just as there's more than one physicalist account of mind, physicalists can't agree on how to explain or describe mind, there are also more than one dualist account of mind. Um, so when does organic life first exist? Well, as soon as sperm and egg fuse, clearly. When does the organic life of an individual human organism first exist? Well, perhaps it's safest to say something like as soon as uh, it's differentiated from, from the placenta, because, of course, the material that becomes the placenta also buds off from that initial sperm-egg fusion, or as soon as we're past the point where it might split into becoming more than one organism. Uh, you have an individual growing organism. See, when does an individual human person first exist? Well, again, you could argue for any answer from C, A to B uh, to a newborn baby still isn't a person until it can do X, Y, and Z, as Minerva does. So there are varieties of dualism, what's called substance dualism. Um, Thomism, which is a favourite amongst Catholics, because it was a view put by Thomism, Thomas Aquinas, the official philosopher of the Catholic Church, uh, drawing upon ancient Greek philosophy from Aristotle, talking about the soul in terms of the form of the body. Form was another one of Aristotle's four causes, the formal cause uh, and the material cause. So he had an efficient, teleological, formal and material cause. So a traditional example is uh, how do you explain a statue? Uh, well, the material cause of the statue was the block of stone it was chiselled out of. Uh, the efficient cause of the statue was uh, hitting a chisel with a hammer repeatedly. Uh, the formal cause of the statue was the idea of the, of the shape in the mind of the artist that he was working towards with the hammer and the stone. Uh, and then, of course, he was working towards that. He was intending to produce this result with his hammer and chisel and so on. And that's the teleological cause. So Thomists think of the, the soul as the form of the body, and that's not a material, it's not the material cause of your body, it's the form of your body. Yeah. Ah, well, now this is a, yes, this is a tricky and interesting question. Is that in the platonic form sense? Uh, you could take it in either direction, I guess, here. For, for, Tom, for Aristotle, it would be no. Um, uh, the forms only kind of exist in the things themselves rather than in a sort of transcendent realm of the ideal forms, which is Plato's uh, view. But then in a Thomistic view of the soul, they also say, although the, the soul is the form of the body... It's a form that can exist independently of the body when you die and then be re then you get you know re embodied in the resurrection. So it seems to press beyond Aristotle's conception without going a platonic route. Um, and how that quite all works out is tricky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a form of dualism uh, now since uh, you know, modern philosophy associated with René Descartes, the French philosopher who locked himself in the steam room and thought, I'm going to doubt everything that I possibly can to find something that I can't doubt and sort of build up from there. And I can't doubt that I exist. I think, therefore, I am. Um, I can doubt that I have a body. 
maybe I don't have a body, but I can't doubt that I'm, I'm thinking that I doubt that I have a body. Um, so there's something true of my thinking uh, that is not true of my body. Now, there must be some sort of distinction between them. This is one of his main arguments. Um, but wherever you arrive there, it's the kind of view that there is, there is a soul distinct from the body, and generally on this view, people will say, and that is, how do you explain how that comes about? Um, they're created by God. That's just there. God does it. And there's a more recent view, a philosopher called William Hasker, particularly associated with this, called Emergent Dualism, who kind of says, yeah, ultimately it's because God arranges for stuff to work that way, but he does it sort of indirectly. There are kind of some sort of metaphysical spiritual laws that say when you get the right matter in the right arrangement then a soul associated with that arrangement pops into existence and he gives this analogy of of course when you get the right matter in the right arrangement to make a magnet a magnetic field pops into existence and actually sometimes uh, that's such that um, if you were to um, annihilate the magnet discombobulate the magnet uh, the magnetic field still stays in existence that's been generated by the magnet. And he says maybe it's a bit analogous to that. You get the right material together in the right way, an immaterial's mind pops into existence that can then continue in existence separately from the, from the brain that, that created it. Um, and that's how God sets stuff up, maybe. So sort of indirect... Um, So on this view, um, when we get to question C, when does an individual human person first exist, we might very well say, well, probably CB, as soon as it's an individual human organism, or when mental properties first exist, when the soul first exists, whenever that is, um, which will differ depending upon your view of Dualism. The, the Thomas is going to say, well, it's from the beginning of the individual life of which that soul is the form. And the form kind of guides the development of that life. Um, the Cartesian might say, well, maybe it's from the beginning of the organic life, but more plausibly, it's from the existence of a sufficiently complex nervous system able to interact with that soul. Uh, why would God bother creating the soul for the body when it can't interact with it? So... He probably does it when it can interact with it. Emergent dualism would say, well, from the existence of a sufficiently complex nervous system that creates the soul. Uh, property dualists would just say that only mental properties, not substances, exist. Again, it was probably from the, a sufficiently complex nervous system. Uh, so, actually, a majority of these understandings of dualism would probably lead you to say there's an individual human person from the earliest phase at which that individual human organism has a sufficiently complex nervous system to, to have a nervous system that's kind of working and um, sensing and, and so on. Uh, so there's not a person very, uh, very early on in the development, uh, but it's certainly a person way before you're talking about infanticide or you know, late-term abortions or whatever. Now, of course, it's one thing to be confident that, that mind-body dualism of some kind is true. Confident that we're not just a material object. You can be more confident of that than you can be, perhaps, of, well, what 
What theory of dualism do you subscribe to? You might even say, well, I'm agnostic about that. I'm sure that I'm more than a brain, but I'm not quite sure how I'm more than a brain. That's, that's obscure to me, maybe. So it's one thing to be confident that dualism is true, another to be confident about which type of dualism is true. And if you were confident about which type of dualism was true, then you could base decisions about abortion and infanticide and so on on that knowledge. Because then you'd be able to confidently answer that question of, is it a person at the moment? But what if you are agnostic or you're not even you know, particularly confident of the right answer here? I mean, if I say, well, you know, I'm a Cartesian dualist, but I'm only like 55% sure... <laughs> And if the Thomist is right, then aborting it now would be murder. I don't think it is, but I'm only 55% sure that it's not. You know, is that high enough confidence level for me to go ahead with the abortion? Might think not. What if the, this question of is it a person now is kind of, it's a black box to you. And you don't really know what's in there other than that the box is labelled some kind of dualism. What would you do? In such a situation, well, here, here's a military example. Oh, uh, live fire exercise. Here we are practicing our uh, grenade throwing. Uh, pull the pin out of the grenade. There's a bunker over there. Uh, you don't know whether or not there are anyone in the bunker at the moment. Should you throw the grenade in the bunker? No. Um, but you don't know that there's anyone. There might be no one in there. But still, I'm going to think, I'm not going to throw this grenade in there until I'm pretty darn sure that there's no one in the bunker. Uh, on the principle of moral caution. The principle of moral caution says, when you, are, when you know that you're ignorant about a morally relevant fact, <laughs> always err on the side of caution. Don't just bl blase go ahead. Uh, so you could extend the argument for C. We got to, you know, if it's a human being, and we're saying, you know, if we could confidently answer that question, that would, that would lead us to a conclusion. But supposing we can't, saying, we'd say, well, given sufficient uncertainty about when to invoke premise three, the principle of moral caution suggests we'd act as if individual organic life and personhood overlap from the earliest possible time. So the conclusion then would be that we should act as if premise one applied from the earliest possible time, which would probably be you know, individual organic life. Um, so to, uh, to advance the timetable, to argue for later abortion than that, you would have to uh, overcome the principle of moral caution by arguing that you've got a, 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 a substantial certainty at least on which kind of dualism is true that leads you to answer the question, is it a person now, uh, negatively at that early stage? Uh, I've got a separate argument, but before we go on to that, let's questions about uh, those issues, anything? I've got a question about the individual life. Hmm. Because actually, it's not an individual life at that point because it's utterly dependent on being part of the mother. Right. And 
until you get to a certain level of pregnancy where a baby might survive mm. independently and then yeah. genuinely be independent of the mother, mm. you do also have a moral obligation and, a, and an ethical set of decisions to make towards the the mm. host of the um, child. Yes. Um, and therefore, when those are in um, mm. Conflict. Conflict. You've then got a whole set of other ethical decision yeah. making. Yeah. To also, instead of saying, well, actually, we need to then maybe think moral caution and mm. head for the very earliest point, mm. is there then a point at which actually the, the, the life of the mother, the well being of the mother, yeah. and where does that tie in? Yeah. Is it purely her physical health mm. that we can take as a moral? certainty here mm. um, or is, is it, it her wishes her wishes her yeah. future her prospects etc as well and, yeah. and at what point do those become lesser compared with a baby's it, right it, yeah I know I'm not saying anything that people don't really know but yeah. it's a it's a more complex thing yes it is than simply dealing with one individual's yeah. Moral yeah. And you, you're absolutely right, and you're, you're quite correctly pointing out uh, one of the reasons why these kind of issues are hard cases, because they involve trying to balance and integrate a lot of different uh, knowledge claims on a lot of different issues together, in order to arrive at a at a judgment about it. Uh, two things to sort of say in response to your, your comments. One is to remember that the, the, the argument that I've given was only for position C, which was that we should have a general caution about aborting whilst being open to the fact that there were probably um, cases in which that general caution could be overridden, that there were exceptions to this caution. So you're... Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where you get, I think, into a, into a debate in terms of, of what makes you human as well. Because mm. if, if we're saying this about a child, that we somehow think they're human simply because of their, um, their, their genetic makeup, they are a human being, not because they have goals or... Yeah. We're set, I think we're erring away from that being the definition. We think they're human before that point. Mm. Mm. But then equally for the mother... Mm. Um, are we saying the only moral stance in which it would be okay mm. to abort would be because her life and integrity as a, as a physical being is in jeopardy versus... Yeah. And, and how does that then tie in with, well, actually, her life might be in jeopardy because she might commit suicide if she went and go home with a pregnancy? Or, right. Or, or those yeah. kind of... Yeah. What if the pregnancy is the result of a rape? All of those. Et cetera, all of those kind of... It yeah. becomes mm. so mm. complex that it's, it's very hard to follow a straight, logical kind of procession. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, yeah, I or we are not, not saying any of those claims because I haven't got that far yet. And I wasn't intending to get that far, in a sense, uh, having pointed out that I'm only making a, a general argument and that there's an exception clause that then is going to bring in a whole lot of other complexity. Uh, and the, one of the questions we're sort of facing is how do you deal with that moral complexity of complex issues? And saying, um, 
do you, despite that moral complexity, have a, a strong enough moral intuition about the situation that you're confident that, that you know what you would do? Well, in that case, do it. Follow your conscience. If, if not, that's when you start turning to normative ethical theories to try and help you out, uh, as I said earlier. Uh, and it might be long and complicated, but there are tools that we can apply, but it does bring in complicated issues, but it, it's like, well, questions like, well, do I accept that Kantian normal or the golden rule is a sensible moral rule? Let's see, can I try and apply it? What, what other metaphysical questions are relevant um, like how do I how am I going to define a person so on um, if I know that that issue is relevant am I or am I not confident of my answer to it in which case should I be invoking a moral uh, caution principle and that moral caution principle itself how strongly should I treat that when should I override it in overriding claims Going through that long dark night of the soul, yeah. where that, that moral caution is is equally valid mm. in both directions. Yeah, in which case you might think well, very well. Think well, they cancel each other out. If you think they're equally valid, mm. they cancel each other out. If they're not equally valid, then that means one is stronger than the other, and you've got your your answer. You yeah, between two lives. Right. Um, and ha yeah, that brings up yeah. That's going to bring up a whole other issues. But I'm sure we could we would work then through questions like: To what extent does the does the, does the wishes of the mother, rather than simply the fact of her life being in jeopardy or not, or come in come into question, for example? And it, if the wishes come into account, then it might differ from circumstance to circumstance, depending on whether or not that mother says. I want to sacrifice my life so that this baby comes into the world or doesn't make that choice. And also the sort of the professional ethics of to what degree do the medical professionals say, well, you are the patient as well as the child and this we should take into account. Or when we get into those really hard cases where there's a difference between you know, the patient's view of the care of their newborn child who's in a state and their doctors want to turn off the machine and the doctors think, well, it's the best of the quality of life and so on. It goes to the high court and the high court makes, you have to make a really difficult ruling on these kind of things, just legally speaking, so that we, we try and sort out what we, what we do. But we, at least we hope that the, the high court judge doesn't just sit there and go, well, this is a really difficult uh, legal moral judgment um, I know I'll flip a coin you know, we hope that they employ, they're employing some sort of uh, set of reasons they can explain that other people can engage with and say yeah I follow your reasoning or here was a, here was a leap in your logic so that doesn't follow or yeah I would get to where you got to if I started from this premise but I disagree about this and this we really need to hammer out you know, between us, what is your view of a person, or when does it become a person, or those kind of views. And at least, in, very least in that process, we'll understand why different people arrive at different moral decisions, 
Um, you know, it's not always that you know we're a good person and we make the right moral decision and they're a bad person and so they've made the wrong moral choice. It's that we're both fallible human beings who have differing understandings of really relevant issues and claims. And if I started from the position that they do, I'd end up where they are, where they are on this. Uh, and I can understand, you know, that that's a difficult choice to make. Uh, that that well-intentioned, rational people disagree about questions of, you know, is Thomistic substance dualism true or not? Um, but that does at least point out that, aside from where we just have, I think, you know, clear moral intuitions about things. These apparently abstract philosophical questions, you know, Thomistic substance dualism or not, or whatever, are actually intensely practical uh, in terms of hard cases, and uh, certainly in terms of understanding uh, other people and the sort of processes that they, they wrestle with in, in moral dilemmas. Um, the other thing I might say about that whole, this is, is a traditional argument within the whole sort of uh, literature of abortion, etc., is the dependency uh, argument. Uh, and uh, people have talked about, you know, crazy cases like you know, the, the violinist case, where you know, you, you, there's a world-class violinist who's got kidney failure or something, and he's going to die and deprive the world of his genius. And during the night, unbeknownst to you, the doctors come along and sedate you and they, they, they tie his uh, renal system uh, into yours uh, so that you are the life support mechanism uh, for this uh, violinist. Uh, and, uh, would it be all right for you uh, on waking up uh, and getting a pair of scissors to chop the cords that are linking him to you or not? You know I mean, you didn't ask to be his life support system um, etc. And they go through these kind of things. But you know, human beings, we are dependent beings. We're dependent in different ways on different things. Um, pre- early births, we get earlier and earlier births as, as viable as our technology for keeping newborns alive becomes more efficient. But then uh, they're viable only in terms of being hooked up to lots of machines and care and so on. Then I'm only viable in terms of being hooked into a society where people do farming for me but, and run an economy and a healthcare system and and so on. I'm I'm only here because I am dependent upon other people. Um, so I'm not sure to what degree that sort of dependency argument uh, overlooks the fact that we're well, we're all dependent upon each other and all sorts of other things. Um, whether or not we're a child in the womb, um, but again, I mean, it opens a whole other, whole other can of worms. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, here's a separate uh, line of argument. Uh, we can have good reasons to refrain from treating X in a certain way, despite it being impossible to wrong X. When I gave you examples earlier with the the, the, the watering can and the cat. You might very well think it's possible for me to wrong the cat by hitting it, um, but not possible for me to wrong the watering can by hitting it, and that's because you're not an animist. Okay, <laughs> uh, you think the can is just a, a material object. 
Perhaps there are reasons for treating the unborn with respect quite apart from our beliefs about the personhood or moral standing of the unborn, at least to the sort of level C that we were talking about. So, uh, again, let's sort of use some sort of intuition pumps. As, would you use this chunk of matter, a big chunk of marble, say, uh, for target practice? Maybe. Don't see any particular problems with that. Um, would you use this chunk of marble for target practice? It's you know, the same matter. Uh, it's been uh, married to a different formal cause here uh, to make a rather beautiful statue. Now, uh, taking pot shots at that statue, I, because I'm not an animist, I don't think that would wrong the statue. I don't think the statue has uh, a human right not to be the, you know, used in target practice or something like this. Nonetheless, I would, I would hesitate to train my machine gun upon the statue in a way that I wouldn't uh, with the, the simple block of marble. Um, indeed, what if, what if I told you that Michelangelo planned to use that specific block of marble to create that statue, the statue with? So the block of marble is not a statue, but there is uh, an artist who's going to use that to create a statue. Would that make a difference? And I kind of think it probably would. Would I use that chunk of matter for target practice? Right, clearly not, but again, perhaps not directly for any reasons to do with thinking of questions like, well, is it a person? Um, it's obviously very similar in some ways to the statue if we just leave aside questions of personhood and so on um, we believe we have duties to care for the environment uh, even though we can't wrong the environment by failing to care for it or by eating bits of it even um, you could impose a duty. You could impose a duty on me to water your flowers for you, whilst you were away on holiday. And my uh, my subsequent failure to water your flowers, um, it harms the flowers. We might say, if they start wilting in the sunshine, but it doesn't morally wrong them, does it? You know, I can't sort of fail to keep a promise to a sunflower. I'm not trampling over the flowers' rights by failing to water them. Uh, but I'm doing something morally wrong. I'm doing something morally wrong to you, their owner, by failing to water them. Um, yeah, think of haycorns uh, here. Back to AML, some haycorns. And haycorn is a potential tree. It's not a tree yet. It's a potential tree. Uh, suppose I want your family to have a tree to enjoy, uh, to look at, to play in, to shelter under its shade in your gardens. Uh, well, if you were to receive that gift of acorns, uh, but you failed to grow the tree, or you grew it only to chop it up for firewood, uh, that might well be taken as 
doing me a moral wrong, the giver of the gift, even if it's not a moral wrong to the tree. Yet, of course, this is where the loopholes come in. There could be circumstances in which I might very well understand you're using the acorn or the tree for a purpose beside that for which I gave it to you. For example, uh, you need to use the tree for firewood because the only alternative available to you was freezing to death. Well, in that case, even though I had given you the tree with you know, strict instructions, this is for your family to enjoy and look at and shelter under its shade, you might very well say to yourself, I know Pete gave us that tree for these reasons and we're going to use it for a different one, but I'm pretty sure that Pete will understand. <laughs> uh, surely he would understand the overriding claim of my family to stay alive. We're not going to enjoy the tree if we're not alive. Now, maybe this is more parallel to the case where we have an abortion case which is threatening the life of the mother, for example. So nevertheless, such an argument from the intent of a gift giver establishes a, a prima facie duty to treat the gift in line with the intention and what you think is the intention behind its giving. Um, and you revert to a biblical worldview and you read things like Psalm 127 about children being a heritage from the Lord and so on. And you might well think, well, there's a sort of prima facie uh, understanding of children as a gift given with certain purposes in mind. Albeit, clear cases where you might well think God will understand <laughs> when we treat those gifts in a different way. Um, because of overriding the important reasons. So the theist, and perhaps even the agnostic, might think that at the risk of doing a moral wrong to God, who intends children to be received as a heritage, we've got a prima facie duty or a precautionary duty to receive and treat unborn children with respect in a certain way, and so on. Um, and that quite irrespective of questions about whether we might be wronging the unborn children in treating them in a, in a, in a certain way. Um, so maybe we can do an end round, run around the whole discussion of are we, you know, when is it a person, is substance dualism true, blah, blah, blah. Uh, just from the point of view of a, a, a theistic uh, we're part of creation kind of worldview. But again, that argument still only gets us to a kind of prima facie, level C, um, okay, but now we face the, the much harder question, as I pointed out, about what are the exceptions to this, this rule? Uh, what are the conditions under which we're going to go beyond uh, this general precaution? Um, but it is at least, I think, another way of arguing against the viewpoints lower on that list, the viewpoints of Minerva uh, et al., of, of Peter Singer, of Richard Dawkins, and so on, saying, actually, not only do we disagree about you know, whether we're above or below that line of C and D on that list, not only do we disagree because we have different understandings of what a human being is, but we also disagree because we have a different understanding of 
of you know, our entire kind of view of ultimate reality. Um, are human beings the intentional creation of a creator who has certain purposes in mind um, or not? And, well, of course we disagree about that because you're an atheist and we're not, you know. Um, but at least understand where we're coming from and we understand where you're coming from uh, and understand that we can't solve all of our ethical dilemmas simply by talking about, oh, you know, Kantian golden rule or should we be a utilitarian or talking about these sort of strictly ethical matters that ethics very soon, really, when you get to hard cases, pushes you into much broader questions about the nature of people and reality and knowledge and so on. Uh, philosophy is practical, uh, in other words. Uh, yeah.